Hi, I'm Karen. And I'm Amy, and welcome to The Next Page, the podcast of the UN Library and Archives, Geneva. So today we welcome to the podcast Dr. Philippa Lensos. Yes, she's a senior research fellow at the Department of War Studies and the Department of Global Health and Social Science at King's College London. She's a social scientist who researched threats posed by biological agents. Wow, all those areas of study are so interesting and I can only imagine that it's even more fascinating to hear about how she connects them all. Definitely. We spoke about the Biological Weapons Convention. And also about some of the quite frightening scenarios around emerging technologies and the importance of values in a moral framework. It was really fascinating to hear about a topic that the general public knows so little about. Let's have a listen. Hello and welcome to the next page. I'm with Dr. Philippa Lentzos. Welcome, Dr. Lentos. Good to be with you, Amy. Thank you. So you're a mixed methods social scientist and you research biological threats at King's College London and at the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. And you also write about this topic in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists and you're an editor of a social science journal called Biosocieties. And you put all of your knowledge into action as NGO coordinator at meetings of the Biological Weapons Convention here in Geneva. Could you tell us a bit more about your background and how you came to work in this field, why this research is important to you? I guess I've always been fascinated by biology, and particularly by the human body. And I was so lucky that I found a degree, uh, an undergraduate degree at UCL in what was called human sciences. And essentially, that was an interdisciplinary study of humans. So I did all kinds of wonderful courses on things like anatomy and physiology and immunology and genetics, um, but also things like psychology and paleoanthropology and and courses that were more focused on social science aspects of of science. And um, having delved deeper and deeper into the physical minutiae of the human body during that course, you know, the molecular and the cellular structures and all of this, it was really the social sciences and the sort of bigger questions that they were asking that I found particularly fascinating. And of course, I had inspiring teachers and I was supported by exceptional mentors. And so it was the social questions that I was interested in. And what really got me going was the security side. So I moved into studying security aspects of the biosciences and of emerging genetic technologies for my doctorate and then for my postdoctoral work, um, always continuing this sort of interdisciplinary perspective. Um, and my first time at the UN uh, following disarmament discussions and the BWC was in the early 2000s. And I've sort of been hooked ever since. I think I've been to every single meeting of the Biological Weapons Convention for nearly the last 20 years. So um, it's a bug that I've kind of got. And I enjoy thinking through how we can sort of prevent the misuse of the sciences. And um, my work on biological threats now has a, a variety of different strands uh, one of these strands focuses on transparency and confidence building and, and compliance assessments of biodefense programs, as well as high-risk bioscience. Another strand looks at emerging technologies and governance and responsible innovation, where I focus particularly on synthetic biology and artificial intelligence. 
A third strand focuses on, on bio-preparedness, simulations, and field exercises. And I have a keen interest in information warfare and, and the deliberate disinformation that's related to kind of global health security. You know, you will appreciate this being from the library. I've been equally interested in the role of science fiction in how we conceptualize biological threats. And then more recently, I've been doing a bit of work on intelligence, biological threat assessment, and, and this kind of engagement between the intelligence communities and the academic communities. So uh, from, you know, just an early interest that I followed, it's kind of spawned a whole series of different research programs for me. Absolutely fascinating. So interested to hear there's a lot about values in there. And um, this podcast is about multilateralism in particular and talking about the UN and how the UN was built on values, values that we have enshrined in the UN Charter. I was interested to see that you start a recent book that you've written, Biological Threats in the 21st Century, with a quote from President Obama's speech to the General Assembly in 2011. Do you have that uh, quote or would you like to read that to us? I, I do, I do, and uh, I'm glad you're asking me to do so because it's really um, a wonderful quote fr from him. And he, he said, the men and women who built the United Nations understood that peace is more than just the absence of war. A lasting peace for nations and for individuals depends on a sense of justice and opportunity, of dignity and freedom. It depends on struggle and sacrifice and compromise and on a sense of common humanity. Wonderful quote. Let's go back a bit to the history of biological weapons because humans have been using poisons and pathogens and with the intent desire to harm others for centuries. So tell us a bit more about how the use of biological arms developed from antiquity up until the 1970s Biological Weapons Convention that was negotiated here at the Palais des Nations. Sure. Well, there, as you point out, there are reports from antiquity of, you know, wells being poisoned, of plague infected cadavers being catapulted into fortified cities and of Native Americans deliberately being given smallpox infected blankets, uh, all to intentionally spread disease. But the real potential of biological weapons, being able to systematically design them, arose at the end of the 1800s. And this was at a time when the discipline of microbiology was forming. So this is when the microbial basis of infectious disease was proven, when the bacteria that caused common diseases were identified and studied, and when bacterial mechanisms of transmission were worked out. These advances in science that was going on in all the different fields at the time, in chemistry too, and, and uh, physics, there were all kinds of incredible advances. They were then applied to unconventional weaponry at an industrial scale for the first time in World War I. So these were the ga gas clouds from chemical weapons that we're so familiar with. And the horrors of gas warfare in World War I were then quickly followed by the 1918 flu outbreak that killed an estimated 50 million people towards the end of the war. And being in a pandemic ourselves, with over 2 million dead worldwide, that 50 million estimate of the 1918 flu outbreak somehow resonates even more. And it's just really overwhelming. And I think it was at the time too. So in the early 20s, when the world was sort of uh, reeling from the staggering fatality numbers, a number of countries uh, in the world 
they called themselves, they referred to themselves as the civilized world in the language of the time, uh, represented by the League of Nations, the precursor to the UN. They agreed to not only prohibit the use of chemical weapons because of their abhorrent use in, in the Great War, but also biological weapons under what then became known as the 1925 Geneva Protocol. But as important as that ban was, becoming universally accepted as part of an inter- of international law, it was just a first, a no first use agreement. So you would agree to not use it first. The Geneva Protocol was not designed to stop the development of biological weapons and significant programs to build biowarfare capacities soon ensued in several states. The earliest program was the Japanese program, but most major World War II combatants had programs. None of these were on the scale of the Japanese program, though, and none of them are known to have involved human subjects' experiments. And that's really what sets the Japanese program apart from the others, that it experimented on people, that it had an incredible scale, and that it started so early. The one program we know a lot about is the post-war American effort to show that biological warfare could rival nuclear warfare as uh, and it was uh, you know very extensive but despite intensive development and testing which eventually did demonstrate that biological weapons could form a, a really great threat to large populations as large as nuclear weapons despite of all of that biological weapons were not assimilated into military thinking and planning and there's been no known use of state use of biological weapons since 1945. And what happened was that President Richard Nixon unilaterally renounced biological weapons in 1969, catching the American bioweaponeers off guard completely, but importantly then paving the way for the for the BWC. And the BWC was a, a British brainchild, essentially, but it was negotiated between the two superpowers at the time in the late 1960s, early 1970s, so the USSR and the US, United States of America. And uh, the BWC was then finally agreed in 1972 and has prohibited not just the use, but the development, the production and the stockpiling of biological weapons ever since. So together with the, the 1925 Geneva Protocol, these two treaties form the biological cornerstones of the rules of war, totally prohibiting biological weapons. And and just because I'm speaking to you from the from the library, you know, the BWC was negotiated in the council chamber, not very far from the UN library. So uh, exactly. there's a nice connection there. Yeah, it is indeed. Yes. I believe you recently addressed the UN General Assembly's Disarmament and International Security Committee, I think at the end of last year. What did you recommend? Yes, that's right. I did address it, the General Assembly of the first committee uh, on, on disarmament international security. Um, and what I was saying is that, or what I was trying to do was to draw attention to the responsibility that biological weapons convention states have to nurture and grow the treaty regime. It's not enough just to have signed this agreement in the depths of the Cold War. It has to be a living document, right? So we have to ensure that it functions properly and that it keeps up with an involving world. And that requires proper and sustained funding. And the BWC has been suffering from lack of funding. So that's one of the issues that I raised. The BWC also requires substantive meeting outcomes. It requires better incorporation of stakeholder groups, updating it a little bit from what the situation was in in the Cold War and who the key players were then. 
um, it needs strengthening trust and transparency and also the establishment of, you know, a dedicated technical body to monitor relevant developments in science and technology. One of the things I focused on was the growing number of high containment labs that are being built globally. There are now well over 50 biosafety level four laboratories, either in operation or under construction, that are spread throughout Asia, Africa, Europe, Russia, and the United States. And these high containment labs carry out some of the most dangerous manipulations of pathogens with pandemic potential, like the coronavirus, but also like flu viruses and and other viruses. Um, And while these labs are built to protect researchers, as well as the public and the environment from harm, lab design can't overcome human error or poor training. And with each experiment comes opportunities for accidental exposures and inadvertent infections and releases. So one of my recommendations was therefore that we need an international body, ideally UN-based, to monitor and inspect these high containment labs um, and the high-risk biological activities that they carry out. Exactly. And an outbreak of a disease or perhaps even an attack involving biological weapons could happen at any time. Um, So one of the ways of of preparing is to do field exercises. And I I believe you've participated in such exercises. Can you tell us a bit more? And, you know, who are the different parties involved? What happens at such an exercise? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I recently, well, pre COVID, uh, had a chance to participate in a biopreparedness exercise, which was organized by the um, Portuguese army. And the um, exercise was part of an annual series of of civil support exercises on CBRN threats. And this particular exercise was based on a realistic scenario involving an investigation of a biological agent that was um, allegedly being deliberately targeted at livestock Um, cows primarily, um, and which then also led to secondary human cases. So that was the bare bones of what we were told coming into this scenario. And then we had to start investigating. And the exercise um, integrated several national institutions, so including the emergency responders, the security fighters, firefighters, environmental agency, the Institute of Health, Veterinary Institute, of course, um, as well as international experts from the WHO and the the World Organization for Animal Health, OIE, and and, and so on. The exercise took place at multiple sites around Lisbon in Portugal. So we were literally in the field sampling cows, uh, interviewing farmers, Uh, We were in disused warehouses, inspecting spraying devices and containers. Um, We were also in hospitals interviewing patients and in the different labs where the samples were being analyzed. And uh, as part of the exercise, I got to wear one of those full bubble suits that you see people wearing when they go into these kinds of high biocontainment facilities, um, which was very exciting, but it was also very nerve wracking when they sort of seal you up and you have to you can only breathe with the help of this oxygen tank and, and being a complete newbie, uh, you know, uh, I was completely reliant on others helping me to get out of that uh, gear. So it was very claustrophobic as I was in there. And I just came up with so much respect for the men and women who wear these masks or these suits um, in the heat and under pressure and while they actually have to perform really difficult tasks. So, I mean, really, really heroic stuff. 
one of uh, my roles during the exercise was developing in interview practices. So I led some of the interviewing of the patients in the hospitals and I wrote up a report about it, which was then presented to the BWC meetings. So in this way, you know, best practices and lessons learned can be shared among BWC member states. That's very interesting. And you make it sound so you bring it to the human level. It's uh, very interesting to hear. Um, but of course, right now we're in the middle of a pandemic and um, it's likely that COVID emerged from nature, as have many other diseases. But tell us a bit more about how this happens and why it's becoming a more frequent occurrence. It's partly as a result of population growth of humans encroaching on, on animal habitats and of us simply not living sustainably anymore. We're, we're not leaving enough wild spaces on the planet, as David Attenborough so passionately advocated for in, in his recent documentaries. Um, and all of this ecological disruption increases the likelihood that new viral disease agents and new viruses from animals will come into contact with humans. Now, in terms of COVID-19, the principal origin theory is that the virus originated from bat populations. And this is supported by genetic studies of the virus that have been isolated from humans. But because there is usually very limited close contact between humans and bats, the investigative team who's just come back from China, their theory is that rather than the bats infecting humans directly, they first transmitted the coronavirus to some intermediate species, an animal that people handle more frequently. So something like a domestic animal or a wild animal or a domesticated wild animal. And, and of course, there's precedent for spillover through intermediate hosts. We saw that with the first coronavirus uh, to have caused serious illness in humans, SARS, which also likely originated in bats, which then infected civet cats and which then infected humans and then caused that very large SARS outbreak in 2003, although, of course, it sort of rather encapsulated by our current outbreak. And, and the same sort of thing happened when another coronavirus the MERS virus spread from bats into camels and then went on to cause the Middle East uh, respiratory system. In the case of COVID-19, though, after more than a year of a lot of searching, no intermediate host has been found. So one of the things to do is then to broaden your origin theories and to look at other possible alternatives. And, and just to mention briefly here that, you know, that there are other more marginal theories and, and one that's gotten a fair bit of attention recently is that the pandemic could have resulted from research activities. So where scientists actively go into the field to look for viruses, catching bats deep in caves to take samples, for instance, and direct bat to human infection could have possibly happened that way. Or there could have been some kind of leak from the labs working on coronaviruses in and around Wuhan. So those kinds of other possibilities are, are still um, out there. And you've mentioned the WHO team uh, in China investigating the origins of COVID-19. Uh, you've co-written a guide to investigating outbreak origins. Could you give us some key points on how experts go about such an investigation? Well, we've seen with the pandemic, what it's really exposed are, are some clear gaps in the international community's ability to assess disease outbreaks, in particular the ability to differentiate between natural and lab sources of infection. And um, yeah, we talked about the increased risk of natural outbreaks as humans and animals are in ever closer contact. And we also talked a little bit about increasing risk of lab accidents as more and more high containment labs are built and as more and more people are doing dangerous biological research. So the guide you mentioned essentially provides a readily adoptable stepwise methodology to 
guide an investigation into outbreak origins that's built on traditional epistemological principles. So it's built on a traditional health type of investigation. And we aim to remain minimally intrusive at all times, but an increasing level of need-to-know information and access then becomes necessary as attention shifts towards potential lab sources. And and as you say, the, the guide is particularly pertinent just now as the WHO team has just come back from China and Ben Embarek, the head of that team, said the lab leak theory will not pers- be pursued in the near future, but at the press conference he didn't say, but in follow-up interviews uh, with various media sources, he later said that you know the topic is lab leak potential is still on the table. And for him, that's already a big achievement because in the past year, it's been really impossible to even discuss a possible lab leak because of all the disinformation that's been formed around that particular theory. And and Embarek said, you know, a lab leak hypothesis is not something that his team or even the WHO alone would be able to move forward on. That would have to be a UN-wide approach in consultation with member states. Um, But if such an investigation becomes a feasibility, then I think the sort of guide that we put together uh, could be helpful. And at a global level, how do we ensure access to investigate? Well, there there are different options. The the most obvious one being the WHO through the international um, health regulations, which is what we essentially had with the current China investigation where the WHO then has to be invited in by the the host country. But there are, of course, other investigatory models from elsewhere, and some of it from the security world. So the OPCW, which is the enforcement agency of the CWC, the Chemical Weapons Convention, and the IAEA, which monitors nuclear activities, are both organizations that have investigatory powers. The UN Secretary General also has powers to call an investigation if, for instance, there's an alleged uh, use of chemical weapons or biological weapons. Interestingly, the the Biological Weapons Convention doesn't have any investigatory powers, but in any case, the BWC isn't the appropriate body to investigate the the pandemic in this case. Uh, There's no suggestion that the virus was deliberately introduced. But what we are missing as a global community is a body with a clear mandate to investigate lab accidents. And this is what I was saying to the UN General Assembly that we talked about earlier. When we started talking, uh, you were also mentioning all the various fields of interest that you've been moving into and you're working in other areas and uh, emerging technologies within these fields. Uh, So one area you work in is synthetic biology, the aim of which is to make biology easier to engineer. Um, Mm -hmm. How can it be misused? If you have that intention, if you have the intention to cause harm, there are a variety of different ways in which synthetic biology can be misused. What synthetic biology really does or essentially does is is accelerate our abilities to manipulate genes and biological systems. So if the intent was there, the identification of harmful genes um, and DNA sequences could be significantly speeded up. And then we could see greater potential to make pathogens, so disease-causing biological agents, even more dangerous. Um, We would be able to convert low-risk pathogens into high-risk pathogens. Uh, We could even, you know, recreate extinct pathogens or engineer entirely new pathogens. And 
as if that isn't enough, these possibilities are coming at a time when new delivery mechanisms for transporting pathogens into human bodies are also being developed. So in addition to what we saw in past bioweapons programs, where they would use bombs and missiles and cluster bombs and sprayers and different kinds of injection devices to spread uh, biological agents. It's now possible to also use other delivery mechanisms like drones, nano robots, these tiny, tiny robots that can be injected into our bloodstream. Even things like insects could be used as vectors to spread uh, biological weapons. So in short, what's happening is that we're lowering barriers to biological weapons use and development, enabling the possibility of biological weapons that are, are more capable and more accessible, that can be more precisely targeted. So there's a lot of concern around what the science is potentially enabling if your intent is to cause harm. Indeed. Um, and we've also made great strides in technology and artificial intelligence. What are some of the challenges facing us today and in the not too distant future? How do we practice responsible AI? As these genomic technologies that we talked about within synthetic biology, as they develop and converge with AI, artificial intelligence, with um, machine learning, with automation, effective computing and, and, and robotics, what we're seeing is that an ever more refined record of our biometrics, human biometrics, our emotions, our behaviors will be captured and analyzed. Um, governments and increasingly private companies will be able to sort, categorize, trade and use biological data far more precisely than ever before, which then creates unprecedented possibilities for social and biological control. So these game-changing developments will deeply impact how we view health, um, how we treat disease, how long we live. And they will equally have significant potential to do harm. We're proposes significant challenges for individual surveillance, for instance, and we're only starting to see some of those impacts through the pandemic and the way in which technologies have been harnessed to control people's behavior. The developments will also radically transform the dual-use nature of biological research and create the possibility of new biological weapons that target particular groups of people and even individuals. So if you think about, you know, pharmacogenomics, which is the science of trying to get drugs that target specific groups of people to help them, uh, obviously, to, to make them better, you can do that in reverse. So you essentially have uh, weapons designed to target just uh, certain genetic groups of people or, or even individuals. So uh, it's a potentially scary future, but what's important to take away and what I took away from the very beginning as an undergraduate was that there is a social context to all this and um, technology doesn't develop in a vacuum. And we have a possibility to intervene and do something about that path forward. Exactly. And um, it does sound incredibly alarming. Um, but at the same time, we started with talking about values. And let's come back to those values because you underlined that individuals and their moral frameworks matter. So what are the values that are important to you in this context? Well, we, we rehearsed Obama's words to the UN that, you know, and what he was saying was that peace is more than just avoiding war. 
um, politics can keep us out of war, but to establish a, a lasting peace, a sustained peace, we need, as Obama said, a sense of justice and opportunity. We need dignity and freedom. Um, and for me, this means nurturing values like uh, common humanity, like global citizenship, personal responsibility, and respect for diversity. And it's by fostering these values alongside intellectual skills, critical thinking and analysis and problem solving. It's by doing that that we nurture a culture of peace and nonviolence. So finally, Philippa, what's your hope for society? That we find a good balance, I think, between advancing what are incredibly exciting breakthroughs in science and that holds incredible potential for doing good for humanity, that we balance that against potential risks that these advances also hold for us. Dr. Philip Valensis, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Amy. It's been good to talk with you.